0: I'd like to start by saying that I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the fellow to my far right taught me a great deal of what I know about the economic dimensions of um, public policy. But I take full responsibility for all my mistakes. Um, I think that Johnny and Mike have done a very good job, very effective job of explaining that even though there will inevitably, there, there there are now and there will inevitably be disagreements over exactly what mix of uh, policies a new American system or recreating the American system will entail. I think they've done a very good job of explaining that at its core, it assumes that less U.S. involvement with the world economy, less entanglement, less openness, less vulnerability to that world economy are are a vital part of that new approach. And what I'd like to do today is to talk about one obstacle to either creating or to recreating the American system um, that's, that's gone almost completely unnoticed. Now, there's no shortage of obstacles to recreating that American system. And once again, Johnny and Mike have done a very effective job of explaining how far this economy has moved from that point, um, from whatever starting historical point you'd like to use. But almost again, completely overlooked is an apparent belief that I think has powerfully fueled this movement away from that vital American system goal and that is, is and that bears great responsibility for all of this economic openness, for all of the vulnerabilities and costs that it's generated. and um, and of course, for all of the vulnerabilities and costs that that have been neglected for so long. and it's And this is going to sound very strange when I first say it. So take a moment to absorb it, please. It's the apparent belief that foreign competition is more valuable, is better for the US economy than homegrown domestic competition. Now, I say apparent belief because this view isn't often voiced. But something, if you think about it, something like it must be broadly accepted, especially by those who have been making national economic policy for so long. Because for decades, until very recently, and and, and I, I, I would use the year 1980 as a starting point, for decades US leaders have worked especially hard to open the American economy wide to foreign competition, mainly through new international trade agreements while simultaneously permitting levels of homegrown competition to fall quite significantly in many, many industries. Now Mike and his colleague Robert Atkinson have argued quite compellingly that the recent bipartisan interest in more active efforts to break up monopolies and oligopolies seems all too likely at some point to do more harm than good. And I don't wanna get involved in that particular debate right now. I just want to emphasize the very growth of domestic concentration, there's considerable evidence for this, and the declining domestic competitive pressure that's surely resulting from it. And therefore, it's very difficult to understand how a much more self-reliant American system can be created if the prioritization of foreign over domestic competition isn't reversed. That is, if there's a strong consensus, and I think it's fair to say there is, that vigorous competition is needed to maximize the benefits of capitalism, notably to spur technological progress, to promote better product quality, to create more affordable goods, to, uh, to enable us to buy a wider variety of stuff all the time, then the emphasis should be on promoting domestic competition rather than foreign competition. Now, for our American system purposes, the long-time rationale for stressing an increase in foreign competition seems to have two related sources. And again, if you think about it, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. The first is that since competition is good, then the more the merrier. Therefore, boosting foreign competition adds to homegrown competition, and you get more competition. The second reason for emphasizing foreign competition is the, the, again, apparent belief that it's simply not possible within the confines of these United States to generate needed levels of competition to achieve all of those benefits that I just laid out. Um, uh, That the U.S. economy simply cannot do it alone. But regarding the first rationale, just how much more competition does foreign competition create for the United States? If let's say we're we're 20% of global economic output or 25%, does that mean that foreign competition altogether can triple or quadruple that level of homegrown competition? Maybe. Or does that mean that it can generate twice as much, or maybe uh, 0.85% as much, or whatever. I have no idea. But what I can confidently say is that no one has even asked that question, let alone answered it. But the assumption seems to me to be pretty dubious given that much of the four-fifths or three-quarters or however much of the world economy you think lies outside the United States, is less advanced than this country is, not more so. As for foreign competition filling some unavoidable domestic competition gap, well, that may be true for many other countries. It, It may be true for most other countries, but it's far from true for the United States. After all, We have advanced technology. We have manufacturing. We have services. We have energy. We have minerals. We have agriculture. We still have dynamic innovation fostering economic and social systems. In other words, to borrow from that Michael Jackson song, I don't think Michael Jackson actually wrote it, but he certainly sang it, we are the world. We are the world. We have satisfactory supplies of pretty much every type of product or service that the rest of the world boasts collectively. That is, we have a matchless degree of self-sufficiency And we have a matchless capacity for more self-sufficiency, despite, and again, Mike and Johnny have done a great job of of detailing this, despite having spent much of the last half century or more trying our best to squander this priceless advantage. Now, we don't have tropical fruit. We don't have coffee. We don't have chocolate. I kind of think we can figure these out, though. It's true, of course, that the transition to an American system economy is not a short-term proposition, and and it probably will never result in 100% self-sufficiency, because we're probably not gonna be able to grow coffee or chocolate, et cetera, et cetera, at least not in the foreseeable future. For example, precisely because we've permitted so many major gaps to emerge in our productive economy, we face enough alarming shortages to require some temporary degree of cooperation with other countries before those gaps get filled. And in that sense, I've got good news, Clyde. You've converted me on this. We can't do it by ourselves. I've had real doubts at first, but you've you've done a great job on that score. And of course, semiconductor manufacturing is a prime example. In turn, these short for. in fact, one, one fascinating thing about semiconductor manufacturing that I just learned recently, there was an article, I can't remember where, but it was about this Japanese company that specialized in making machinery that transported silicon wafers among the various stages of the semiconductor manufacturing process. And this has to be really advanced machinery because those things are really fragile and it has to be super clean and all this. I mean, who even thought of this if, if you weren't in the semiconductor industry to start with? But again, we don't have that company. That capacity doesn't exist. We've got to get it from someplace. But these... Production shortfalls also extend to the professional workforces needed to reestablish domestic output. So some flexibility on immigration policy, dare I say it, some flexibility on visa policy will be needed too, at least until we get that productive workforce back up to snuff. And in fact, maybe the best American system shouldn't even aim to hermetically seal the economy over whatever time frame you're thinking of after all recognizing that foreign competition isn't superior to homegrown competition by no means requires dismissing foreign competition as being completely worthless Similarly, the prioritizing of domestic competition doesn't mean that all domestic corporate concentration needs to be broken up, and in that vein, Mike and his colleague Rob Atkinson have offered some very useful guidelines for U.S. antitrust policy. Instead, the aim, to be a sh- the aim should be a shift in emphasis a recognition that what's important for fostering an American system worthy of that name is realizing that it's not foreign competition that's needed for economic success, it's competition. It kind of doesn't matter, in that sense, where it comes from. But since the United States is eminently capable of supplying so many of its own economic needs and wants, and could supply so many more of them if it took that aim seriously, without many of the downsides of foreign competition, why not reorient our national economic strategy? Why not recognize the proper relationship between trade and competition policy? Why not view them through different lenses? Why not base them on different default positions? So for example, before approving new international trade and or investment agreements, Washington should ask whether the added increment of foreign competition and the benefits that it supposedly will create are worth the national security costs, the economic cost, the healthcare security costs. I'm old enough to remember face masks. And regarding those economic costs, all the social pathologies produced by them. And for industries that do need a competitive kick in the uh, pants, let's say, let's first ask if that kick can come from some more active domestic antitrust moves. Before approving more mergers and acquisitions, Washington can ask if the firms involved.